This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrol. What is the function of art in the era of digital globalization? How can one think of art institutions in an age defined by planetary civil war, growing inequality, and proprietary digital technology? The boundaries of such institutions have grown fuzzy. They extend from a region where the audience is pumped for tweets to a future of neuro-curating in which paintings surveil their audience via facial recognition and eye-tracking to assess their popularity and to scan for suspicious activity. In Duty-Free Art, filmmaker and writer Hito Styrol wonders how we can appreciate or even make art in the present age. What can we do when arms manufacturers sponsor museums and some of the world's most valuable artworks are used as currency in a global futures market detached from productive work? Can we distinguish between information, fake news, and the digital white noise that bombards our everyday lives? Exploring subjects as diverse as video games, WikiLeaks files, the proliferation of free ports, and political actions, she exposes the paradoxes within globalization, political economies, visual culture, and the status of art production. Duty-Free Art, Art in the Age of Planetary Civil War, by Hito Styrol, out now from Verso Books. Welcome to The Dig, a podcast from Jacobin Magazine. My name is Daniel Denver, and I'm broadcasting from Providence, Rhode Island. This is part two of my interview with Timothy Mitchell, a political theorist and historian of the Middle East at Columbia. We're talking about his book, Carbon Democracy, Political Power in the Age of Oil, published in 2011 by Verso. In part one, we talked about a lot of things, including how the rise of coal made both industrial capitalism and newly powerful worker resistance possible, and how the shift to oil then facilitated the persistence of imperialism in a decolonizing world while thwarting worker organizing. In this installment, we talk about a lot more. Imperialist assaults on workers' struggles in Iraq and Iran, the co-optation of those struggles by nationalist elites, and how those imperialist attacks actually helped build the Ba'athist security state. We'll also talk about why the true history of the 70s oil shock undermines the conventional account, how the protection of minorities was used to legitimate imperialism, how petrodollars fueled the global arms trade, in what sense the Iraq war has been a war for oil, and in what senses it has not, and the long-running U.S. strategy to seek advantage through the continuation of conflict and instability across the Middle East. Finally, we'll discuss petro-imperialism's bedrock alliance with right-wing Islamists against democratic movements of the left in Saudi Arabia and beyond, and why we must fight to ensure that the coming energy transition is a just one. Before I get any further, my dearest listeners, it's our spring fundraising drive at patreon.com slash the dig. 
Unlike certain major public radio stations, your donations don't go to someone making a mid-six-figure salary. Your contributions go to me and to my producer and to our overhead. I spend days prepping for most interviews, and we give it to you all without a paywall for free. And we really can't do it without your support. Plus, we've got treats. $10 a month gets you a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism, published by Verso. $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of books by my guests and other great authors. And anyone who puts up 5 bucks a month or more gets a copy of my brand new weekly newsletter, which Michael Utrecht suggests that I do a better job of copy editing. I'll work on it. The newsletter has advice for further reading on things that get discussed on the show and more. So please hit pause now and donate what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash the dig. Here's part two of my interview with Timothy Mitchell. If you haven't listened to part one yet, I recommend that you do that first. The last episode ended with Mitchell explaining how oil politics shaped the British approach to building a client state in Iraq. This installment begins with me asking about how they handled things in Palestine. You write that initially Britain had only planned to retain the port of Haifa to export oil from Iran to the Mediterranean, which is sort of similar to their idea about Basra initially, I guess. And but that they determined that Zionist settlers whose quote unquote self-determination they would support would be necessary to thwart Palestinian opposition. Tell me about what played out in Palestine and how oil shaped what happened. Yes, if you look at some of the early discussions the British were having with themselves and allies about the ways they wanted to carve up and um, take control of the uh, of the Arab world after the um, anticipated collapse of the Ottoman Empire, and they were thinking partly of imperial routes, but also of the um, oil that it was anticipated they would be producing in Iraq. And so they envisaged um, initially actually a railway line from Haifa to Baghdad, um, and later it became a pipeline, um, not to Baghdad, but to the oil fields. Um, but um, uh, it, plans changed, um, partly because the original dividing up involved other states like um, Russia and the Italians and so on that weren't involved um, uh, at the end um, in, the, in this divvying up of the spoils. Um, but um, uh, partly later in the war, in the First World War, Britain developed this alliance with uh, the Zionist movement, which um, uh, had devised this plan for um, Jewish settlement in Palestine. And that was the alliance that actually developed. And the advantage to the British was that if they were going to have to, um, to some extent, uh, organized the post-World War I Middle East on a principle of self-determination, uh, 
the question then was what was the self that had the right to 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 um determination in fact there was a broader principle than self-determination which the british weren't particularly keen on anyway and that was the principle of protection britain in fact had begun turning some of its colonies egypt for example in what were called protectorates um and originally protectorates were local rulers in Egypt, uh, in the Gulf, in parts of, of, of India that weren't fully incorporated into the British Empire. Protectorate was a ruler who received protection from the British in exchange for allegiance. The British Empire would offer protection to a local ruler um, in exchange for his allegiance um, with with um, with Britain. Um, but what a protectorate starts to come in the late 1930s, 20th century is something different. It starts becoming a claim that Britain is there occupying a country because it needs to protect certain key interests. And because it was hard to uh, pose that directly in terms of um, economic interests, it would usually say it was in the interests of certain minority groups. And often in the Middle East, one found um, uh, European, Levantine, Syrian minorities and so on in various places who were closely tied commercially into Europe. And part of what justified a continuing colonial presence was that there were some very significant minority, usually with a vital economic role in the country, and that minority needed um, uh, British protection. Uh, and I think that's a clue partly to how Britain starts to see itself in relation to Zionism, that if, if, um, if it wants to make its foothold in Palestine a little larger than just um, controlling a port, um, protection is the way to go. Uh, controlling a port isn't going to be viable alone because it's quite clear by that point that the uh, population there, the, pop the, the, the Palestinian population, is not going to accept being colonized. Um, and it would be very hard just to hang on to a port by itself. So you actually need a larger um, area of territory to occupy. You need to think about occupying all of Palestine. Um, and in order to justify... And Palestinians, Palestinians are sabotaging pipelines. And on top of well. that, um, uh, as the, well, the pipelines aren't quite in place yet, but as this unfolds, one of the major forms of, of protest from the 1930s onwards is going to be the sabotage of these pipelines. So even more reason why you need a broader military presence. In fact, one of the main things the military does is start to protect these pipelines. But again, it's hard to say you need an entire military presence in a country just to protect a port and some pipelines. Whereas if you have some kind of um, minority there that you can um, declare in need of protection than your larger political presence. So it is it, easier to justify. So in a way, the, the, the support Britain starts to give to Zionism is this thing, trying to create a protectorate, trying to create a place with a vulnerable minority whose very vulnerability as um, settlers coming from Europe will require a continued British presence. So, um, you know, what one has is setting up a situation, uh, that of, of, of the, the colonial settlement of, of, um, of Palestine under the auspices of the Zionist movement, whose very purpose from the point of view of the British is to create uh, a situation of uncertainty, of vulnerability that is going to require its role as the protector. And something 
similar plays out in Iraq. You write that the one major pretext for British control was to protect the the Kurds. And I think that people in the West, uh, this sort of echoes what we were discussing in terms of, you know, these uh, ancient, <laughs> uh, supposedly kind of ancient monarchi- monarchical tendencies of the Middle East. But I think people tend to think of sectarian violence in the region in a similar way as the sort of primordial ancient tribalism when right. in reality is this is today's sectarian violence in many ways rooted in this story of oil imperialism that that you're telling from the early 20th century early and mid Kurdistan of course refers to um a region that encompasses parts of northern Iraq um eastern Turkey parts of Iran neighboring parts of Iran um and um uh, even eastern northeastern Syria an area where um the Kurds are the, the largest population and um where their language and culture and so on along with other groups and um there was a very strong feeling in um and, and set of demands um uh that the political rights of Kurds needed to be um uh respected and um realized in some form at the end of the uh first world war the problem was britain and france had other ideas in terms of how the borders between different countries should be drawn and in the original schemes they had drawn up among themselves kurdistan was actually going to be a french territory and was going to be connected with a french controlled syria um because the french were going to have that set of oil fields but then um the British decided they'd extend their own demands um, and instead looked to uh, incorporate um, the Kurdish territories or part of them into Iraq so that the oil of Kurdistan could become Iraqi oil. So again, um, uh, there's an advantage to the British in creating states that have minorities that um, Britain can then um, set itself up as the protector of and so on. Uh, and um, the particular ways these borders were drawn and um, were to suit the interests largely of of those imperial powers rather than uh, historical patterns of community or communication or trade or whatever. Despite these efforts to foment sectarian divisions as a pretext for their their rule, their are major mobilizations across the Middle East, including in Iraq, where oil workers and the Communist Party of Iraq lead a number of, of struggles, and Britain and the U.S. fight to to crush these. Tell me about these early and in, in mid twentieth century struggles in in Iraq and and how they played out. Well, Iraq and Iran are the two main ones I look at in in the book, um, though I also mentioned that one finds similar strikes and political demands in Saudi Arabia and smaller Gulf states and so on, um, though some of those are only being developed a little later after the Second World War. Um, maybe I- Iran's uh, one of the more interesting to look at. Um, uh, you have uh, an organized um, labor force in the um, oil industry, uh, beginning in the 1930s at least, um, and you have a, um, a communist party of 
uh, of Iran, the two-day party um, that organizes, that is suppressed, is driven underground, um, re-emerges um, at the time of the Second World War when um, Britain and its allies, the Soviet Union, um, occupy the country. And what also re-emerges is a sort of mobilization of oil workers, um, particularly at the end of the war, um, with a series of demands again over working conditions, pay, living conditions, but also the whole colonial context of this this, this um, uh, imperially owned and managed oil company um, with the oil labor actually being done um, by a local population that has nothing remotely like the comforts and the privileges of their white man managers. So oil companies become a very intense focus of um, the struggle against a form of um, imperial control or quasi-imperial control of the country's resources. It's where you really sort of see it close up, both in Iran and in Iraq. And um, what you see in Iran is um, a solution put forward by um, the oil workers that um, uh, for or, or, or set of demands put forward for vast improvements to um, conditions of life and to terms of employment, to wages, to and to political rights and beyond that, the rights to form labor unions and to act politically, that becomes quite powerful. Now, one of the situations again that makes the case of oil and oil states different from coal and coal states is that in ways we've been discussing. Um, uh, unlike coal, oil develops in this context of imperialism and colonial control. What that means is that um, whereas these demands of workers in coal-based economies became um, demands for a whole set of uh, political rights for, um, for the working class, in places like Iran, it's possible for ruling elites to translate them into something else and to divert some of the sort of economic and political force of those demands into a kind of anti-colonial nationalism. Now, it's not the, the, that the workers are not imposed to imperialism, but the way the, the colonial situation works is that nationalists in power, large business and landowning families can appear to support the oil demands, but appear to support them by saying, the problem here is the foreigners. Let's turn this against the foreigners. So the colonial situation means you can translate a sort of workers' struggle into a nationalist struggle against colonial control and demand um, not the satisfaction of all these wider political demands, but a much more simple one, which is that the foreign country give up its rights and turn them over to a state-owned oil company. And that demand is made in, in Iran and later on in Iraq, in Saudi Arabia and so on. And this is the case with, with Mossadegh and also with uh, Qasim, is it, if I'm pronouncing his name right? Right. So, so in, in both cases, um, you, you get the emergence of a kind of nationalist leadership um, that is more liberal, more open to sort of diverse forms of politics, but is uh, but are not in any way people of the left, um, who become 
the figures who translate this demand, a whole range of of quite radical social demands um, emerging out of the conditions of labor in the oil industry into a nationalist demand over who owns the oil. Um, so on the one hand, it's very powerful because oil companies are among the most powerful political forces in the world in the post-war period. And you know, one of the places they are most radically challenged, this this power of the corporation that we've come to live with in the course of the 20th century. Uh, and, you know, we're looking around in our own politics today. You know, how do you challenge the power of a corporation? Well, one of the places it's challenged is in the oil producing countries of the Middle East. And again and again, these attempts are made in Iran, in Iraq, elsewhere to um, uh, to end the foreign ownership, by the ownership by foreign corporations of the country's oil. So Mossadegh in 1951 uh, is the first example. The oil is nationalized um, and that is defeated. And that is defeated because um, uh, Britain's able to impose a blockade and prevent the exporting of any oil. That gradually weakens the country financially, plunges it into crisis, and then it has enough agents in place in the country to start fomenting um, uh, political discord. It funds um, some of the Islamist forces against the left and um, uh, generally creates a, a condition of disorder uh, in the context of which um, the, the 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 Americans and the British help organize a military coup to overthrow the government and um, resort to a system of autocracy under the Shah. That's in '53. Another example of the sort of uh, seemingly ancient regime that, uh, um, right? That Another the West monarchy. Is such a fan I mean, of. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and the Shah, you know, it's an old Persian title, but he's not happy with Shah, so he he starts calling himself not just King Shah, but Shah of Shahs or Emperor, and he expects everyone <laughs> else to refer to him as Emperor, and he he stages very famously um, a celebration of 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 the five thousandth year of his imperial dynasty's rule, which is all fictional, but uh, um, world leaders all turn up uh, to celebrate his rule. This is later on. Um, um, Iraq is actually where the real battle happens, um, if you like, because um, in Iraq, uh, the first attempt under Qasim, um, who takes over in a military-based seizure of power, who is sort of follows a kind of populist set of programs somewhat similar to those of Nasser in Egypt, but then is overthrown after the failure of various CIA attempts to assassinate him. He's finally overthrown. Um, and the CIA provides well, the, the coup government with a list of Iraqi Communist Party members to, to hunt down and murder, right? And and, and um, hundreds and hundreds of uh, key of the country's key intellectuals and, and political leaders are, are assassinated. Um, after the overthrow of Qasim. Uh, what one has then is the emergence of another kind of regime, and um, one sees this in, in, in Syria and elsewhere, because the the regime and the sequence of coups over the following years in each country with various forms of foreign intervention and involvement, um, they've got to create a coup-proof regime. And if, you know, one way to understand Ba'athism and Saddam Hussein, which is what comes out of this in Iraq, is how to produce a regime that has organized surveillance and fear 
and loyalty so extensively that for the first time it it, it becomes it is able to insulate itself either against domestically organized or foreign organized uh, counter coups. This total state that emerges under Assad and and in Syria and Hussein in, in in Iraq that just sort of seamlessly connects the executive to the military and security services. Right, the development of a you know instead of just having an army and making sure you've got a few loyal generals, you know, have multiple different armed forces, have you know, uh, royal guards, revolutionary guards, whatever they're called, who are not part of the regular army, uh, and so on. Um, multiple levels of security sources and systems of um, intelligence um, and. Uh, uh, monitoring of political activity that is organized on a more and more intense level so that any kind of um, political dissent is um, uh, is at risk. It's a strange situation because in Iraq, for example, there's a brief period when Saddam is allied with the Communist Party because some of, you know, some of their politics does come out of a kind of uh, uh, of, of a left, even though they themselves individually are not that. They, um, you know, they are really nationalists, or the nationalism they appeal to, but in order to uh, win support, they adopt some of the policies of the left in terms of um, nationalization of industry and introduction of a whole range of um, social reforms in education, women's rights, um, healthcare, and so on. Um, and sometimes actually in alliance with parties of the left, but sooner or later those parties um, uh, fall foul of the surveillance systems of the regime and are uh, driven out of power, driven underground, imprisoned, and so on. But it, it, it's a you know, a, a period of of politics in all those countries with uh, those unusual kinds of dynamics. But what Saddam manages to do, and he's the only one who able to do it, and it's because of the kind of grip he builds on political power, is he takes control of the oil industry. Um, uh, and there are minor cases elsewhere that are somewhat related in Algeria and Libya, but it's the first major oil producer of the Arab world where the foreign oil companies are driven out um, is under Saddam in the late 60s, early 70s. And that's a turning point because once he's done it, then um, the oil companies realize the writing on the wall is is there pretty much across the region and they negotiate the handover of ownership to national oil companies. In um, in most of the other cases, Iran, Saudi Arabia, the Gulf states, and so on. And this is also where the story of of OPEC begins. And something that I uh, want to ask you about is that there's this very conventional account of the the energy crisis, the oil crisis of the early '70s, that you turn on its on its head. And I think. The, understanding why the conventional account is wrong is is really critical because the the energy crisis of the 70s is this key event upon which so much of the rest of our understanding of late 20th century history and the end of fordism the ride of rise of post-fordism the rise of neoliberalism that it all kind of rests on this pivot of the oil shock Explain what the conventional yeah. account is and what actually happened. 
the conventional account of uh, the 73-74 oil crisis is that uh, in this context in which Arab states and Iran are beginning to take control of oil production, they not only demand ownership of the um, oil structure of their countries, but they also demand a higher price for oil. Um, and through a series of demands, um, they gradually force up what is referred to wrongly as the price of oil. And uh, that all comes to a head in a crisis, it is said, around the October 1973 Arab-Israeli war, when it is said often, again erroneously, that OPEC imposes an oil embargo on the West, and um, uh, this uh, sudden dramatic uh, blockage of oil supplies causes a quadrupling of the price of oil, and the West is somehow held um, hostage by the demands of these newly powerful Arab oil states. Now, the problem with that account is uh, there's many problems, um, uh, and the first thing to understand is that um, the oil companies themselves, in ways we don't quite fully in, uh, understand, are very interested in having a much uh, in, in oil being sold in the West at a much higher price, and that is because of this way in which they are losing control, direct control of oil production in the Middle East. Um, they're now going to have to buy their oil from national oil companies in the Middle East, and therefore they're going to have to make um, their profits uh, in the downstream in the process of refining and distributing and selling the petroleum to users in the West. The other advantage to them of a much higher priced oil is that they need to find new places to start drilling for oil. New places are going to be more expensive to drill, places like the North Sea and uh, Alaska, um, which would be feasible if the price of oil were to increase dramatically. So uh, the, the oil companies want the price of oil to go up, but they don't want to take the blame for it. Um, that's part of the story. Um, the other part of the story is that there's actually two uh, interrelated but different processes going on. One has to do with this control of oil and the way in which oil is priced, and the other has to do with the Palestine conflict. Um, and they happen to come together, but they involve different parties. Um, so to deal with the question of oil first, what happens is that the oil producing states um, start saying, telling the oil companies they intend to tax um, oil production, even while it's still under control of foreign companies, they're going to tax it at a higher rate. And the rate of tax that the oil firms will have to pay either to produce oil or to purchase oil from producers in the Middle East um, will increase. Now, uh, it's a quirk of the way oil pricing worked was that instead of referring to a tax, um, if you wanted to increase the tax, what you did was you raised a sort of notional benchmark, which was referred to as the posted price of oil. So uh, there was no price of oil um, in the sense that there was no oil market, international oil market, as there is today, where you could go and find out how much today or tomorrow or next month a, a barrel of oil will sell for. And that's because oil was almost entirely monopolized within the um, 
production distribution systems of this cartel of major oil producers, private, you know, of, of, of corporations. Um, so you couldn't, the, 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 the Arab countries were not saying we want to increase the price of oil. They had no say in the price of oil. The only thing they had a say in was how much they tax a barrel of oil when it's produced. But that tax was referred to as posted price. So the argument was, we want to increase the posted price of oil because the tax rate was always calculated in terms of this artificial benchmark. But the oil companies reported this in the West, and the Western media reported it as Arab states increasing the price of oil. They weren't. They were saying, we're going to tax you more for your oil. Uh, it's up to you what proportion of that increased tax is paid out of your extraordinary levels of profits and what uh, what proportion of it you want to just try and pass on to consumers. To pass it on to consumers... And it was the oil companies then that... Um, not only decided that they needed to maintain the same enormous profit margins, but even expand them and using the crisis as a pretext. It, it turned into this e- extraordinary um, opportunity, not just to increase the price of oil 10% or 15% or 20% of what might have been uh, the amount of, of tax increase, um, but rather what happened was the price of oil quadrupled. I don't think even the oil companies uh, expected that. But because their mode of doing this was by triggering a crisis, um, which they'd been gradually preparing for, uh, it it was sort of a little out of control. The other thing was that the opportunity to actually have the crisis arrived um, in the course of these uh, debates and standoffs over the, the tax rate. Um, when in um, 72, 73, um, the Arab states decided that the, and Egypt in particular, that the only way it, it could do something about the fact that Israel was occupying a large part of Egypt, the Sinai Peninsula, and was blocking the use of the Suez Canal, was by um, launching a war against uh, the military, the, the Israeli forces occupying Egypt. That was the October 73 war. Um, they launched that war. They managed to catch the Israeli forces by surprise to establish a beachhead on the part of Egypt, the other side of the Suez Canal, and um, uh, force the Israelis into retreat. But um, when uh, the U.S. then decided to side uh, completely with Israel in the conflict instead of using this sort of disruption to the settled occupation to figure out some solution to the Palestine question, which the Arab states were calling for. Um, the Arab states announced they would embargo the supply of oil to the U.S. And uh, that embargo, it was not organized by OPEC. It was organized by a group of Arab producers. It wasn't involving all Arab producers. So um, for example, Saddam Hussein refused to um, join the embargo. He said this is just something being cooked up between the oil companies and, and their allies in Egypt and Saudi Arabia. Nevertheless, it was successful in creating this global panic about the availability of oil, people rushing to the gas station, filling their cars and trucks with far more oil than they needed and generating a, a, a shortage of oil and a crisis that very quickly quadrupled the price of oil. So um, 
there, were, there was this kind of staged crisis um, that in itself was possible only because of the intransigence of the U.S. in refusing to put pressure on Israel over the addressing the Palestine question. And the, the long-term political economic consequences of all of this are, are enormous. It drives um, the stagflation economic crisis, which facilitates a corporate backlash against the New Deal order in the U.S. that we are still living with today. Absolutely. And something really interesting, you note, is that it's oil money that plays a huge role in funding the intellectual architecture of that backlash. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, you know, this neoliberal movement that we now know lots more of the history of had been a sort of small background kind of movement of the far right and of certain economic departments. But um, it uh, it really takes off because one of the small but very significant uses of this huge bonanza of oil funds is um, that oil companies play a decisive role in funding um, uh, the establishing of new think tanks or the funding on an extraordinary scale of old think tanks that in, in Washington particularly uh, that start promoting this new set of um, uh, of political doctrines around neoliberalism and what comes to be called the market as um, a way of undoing the forms of social protections that have been put in place thanks to the earlier kinds of politics of energy. So you know, oil not only weakened forms of democracy when it provided an alternative to coal the generation before this, but then its profits actually directly fund the further de-democratizing, um, the further sort of taking away of forms of um, political rights and protections that have been won through the, through the rise of of neoliberalism as this increasingly powerful political movement entrenched in, in Washington and and elsewhere. I'm Naomi Klein. You're listening to The Dig as well you should be, and you can support them on Patreon.com. This episode of The Dig is brought to you by our supporters on Patreon and by Verso Books, which has loads of great left-wing titles, perfect for Dig listeners like you. One that you might like is Police, A Field Guide by David Correa and Tyler Wall. It doesn't take firsthand experience to learn the meaning of pain compliance or rough ride. Police, a field guide, is an illustrated handbook to the methods, mythologies, and history that animate today's police. It is a survival manual for encounters with cops and police logic, whether it arrives in the shape of officer-friendly, tasers, curfews, non-compliance, or reformist discourses about so-called bad apples. In a series of short chapters, each focusing on a single term, such as the beat, order, badge, throwdown weapon, and much more, authors David Correa and Tyler Wall present a guide that reinvents and demystifies the language of policing in order to better prepare activists and anyone with an open mind on one of the key issues of our time, police brutality. In doing so, they begin to chart a future free of this violence and of police. Police, a field guide by David Correa and Tyler Wall. Out now from Verso Books. There's this other key aspect of the oil story during this this period that I want you to touch on, which is what happened to the petrodollars. And 
one consequence that you note is the indebtedness of uh, global South governments and resulting servitude to international financial institutions. And then there's also, which I had knew about, known about before, but then something I didn't know about was the recycling of petrodollars via weapons sales. Yeah, I think I'd actually phrase that slightly different now than the way I phrased it in the book. Um, uh, because, um, you know, there's the, obviously with this um, huge increase in the price of oil, there's the, 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 the bank accounts of um, uh, of oil producing states are going to be swollen with funds and something has to be done with those funds. Um, uh, but it's actually more than that because it's not just the funds that suddenly become available. It, it's vastly more than that. The thing about, um, the oil industry, um, it's not unique, but it's a, it's a pretty major case of it is that, um, thanks to the, um, way our lives have been engineered to have a dependency on oil. Um, uh, it, it's one of those industries where you can, um, you know, foresee profits not just a year or two ahead, but five or ten or fifteen, twenty years ahead. And so, um, what that means is that profits in the future that used to be uh, things only in the hands of um, the multinational oil companies are now future revenue in the hands of countries like Saudi Arabia and Iran and other Gulf states. Now, um, uh, what what the financial industry um, is interested in is um, the, the, the wonderful opportunity this offers for lending against, in other words, creating credit against those future revenues. But the trouble with marching into Riyadh or Tehran or somewhere and say, look, we can give you billions is that, you know, they don't really need billions all that much because, you know, just the the money coming in year by year is pretty significant and hard to soak up. And um, so you sort of need something uh, quite extraordinary in scale um, on the level of, of, of hundreds of millions and later billions of, of dollars that you can you know, persuade people that they really do need. And you know, a little bit of that can be long-term construction projects, infrastructure, and there's certainly uh, lots and lots of spending on that. But the real boom that people realize um, is possible is to promise those future revenues um, uh, by organizing the sale of arms. Um, of course, the Middle East becomes, you know, this extraordinary market for the sale of arms. Iran under the Shah, Saudi Arabia, and to a small extent, the smaller countries, um, uh, uh, become the biggest customers in the world for what emerges as this private arms industry. Uh, there's always been, um, uh, some sort of government aid moving arms from one part of the world to the other. But now there's going to be this vast private industry in arms. And people would tell you, well, of course, arms, because um, we had to secure 
the region, the supply of oil, Middle East oil. But I, I think that story is is completely unreal. Um, there was no significant threat to the supply of oil. It was still the case that the problem of oil is that there was too much of it. OPEC had to now manage the supply of oil and keep imposing quotas on people so they didn't produce too much of it. The world was awash in oil. New sources of oil were coming available in the North Sea, Alaska, West Africa, and so on. It was more about um, flattering autocrats ambition security well, it ambitions was, it, 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 it certainly worked through that flattery but the thing was if you want to um somehow access those future revenues it's very difficult to think of something you can sell people that they're going to need so much of for the next 20 years you know you can tell them they need a few more factories but they're not much interested in that they don't they're rich enough not to have to need to make many things. Um, uh, they like buying expensive cars, but you can only own so many cars. You need something that is both extraordinarily expensive and you can somehow justify a very large need for it. And the, the, the ideal object for that kind of purposes is something like a fighter jet. It's quite small. Um, you can park dozens or hundreds of them in a relatively small place, place, and every single one of them costs millions and millions of dollars. And it's an extraordinary way to sort of build a kind of um, a recycling, a petrodollar recycling, but even more that, a sort of indebtedness to future oil revenues. Um, but of course, if only they had the London and New York real estate markets available to them at the time as they do now. Well, that, that, that was <laughs> that was to come later. Um, for the time being, um, and of course, some of it did go into real estate, but but arms were by far the biggest uh, source of expenditure, and these weren't arms anybody needed for anything. And we saw that when um, Saddam turns around in um, 1990 and invades. Um, Kuwait and this mega-armed Saudi Arabia is is incapable of doing anything. Um, but uh, but they are these things that if you show them enough glossy catalogs and you talk about becoming a great power and you set up uh, centers for strategic studies that talk about um, the need for all this weaponry and if you take out-of-context speech by Richard Nixon given when he needed to fill a hole in the news cycle and call it the Nixon Doctrine. Um, there's all kinds of things you can do to make it seem logical that these extraordinary, uh, extraordinary expensive and extraordinary numbers of weapons are now going to make their way to the um, airfields of, of the Middle East. A strategy that the that the U.S. pursues in in the region, you write, and that I think dovetails with this arms-selling approach is to perpetuate instability in the region. And you point out that the U.S., which backed Iraq in the Iran-Iraq war, consistently seeks to, to keep the war going and to frustrate opportunities to bring the war to the end. And it's an incredibly costly war in terms of, of lives and dollars. And that then, afterwards, when Iraq invades Kuwait to recoup economic strength that had been sapped by the Iran-Iraq war, the U.S. invades Iraq to keep it weak. And you write that fueling conflict in the region for the U.S. compensated for its for the U.S.'s weakness vis-a-vis the, 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 breadth, the incredible breadth of its imperial ambitions. 
Yeah, I, I mean, a lot of this uh, sort of centers on the problem of uh, Saddam's Iraq. He's built a form of power that is somewhat impervious to the kinds of imperial manipulation and control. He forms alliances strategically here and there with the, with the Soviet Union, with the French, uh, to some extent with the British, and one moment with the Americans and so on. But he's not under anybody's thumb. And, um, of course, uh, Iran, after the Islamic Revolution, is a similar kinds of problem. So these countries that for almost all their 20th century history had been you know, client states of one or another European power uh, are suddenly um, powerful enough and insulated enough to um, follow their own uh, independent foreign policy, make their own demands, um, uh, pursue their own interests in neighboring support, their own allies in neighboring countries, Syria, Lebanon, Palestine, and elsewhere, and so on. And that's something the, the U.S. has not really had to deal with in that way before, or where it has, um, or where Britain had to, for example, with um, with Nasser in the 1950s, uh, or with Mossadegh in the 19, in, in Egypt, or with Mossadegh in the 1950s in, in Iran, it, it organized coups or it attempted or invasions to overthrow them. But it can't do any of that anymore. So in a way, it does the next best thing, which is to tries to um, take advantage of uh, regional hostilities, uh, if not actually stoke them, um, in such a way that um, Wars break out, and uh, due to a variety of political instabilities or rivalries, and then rather than working very hard to bring those to an end, the policy of the U.S. Uh, tends to be to find ways to prolong them. And it actually uh, did this first um, in the case of Afghanistan, where there was a revolution in 1974. It went through various changes and. Um, shifted further left, and um, uh, the U.S. began um, destabilizing through the arming of Mujahideen forces based next door in Pakistan, with ultimately the goal not just of destabilizing and prolonging the destabilization of this um, leftist government, but to the extent that it became increasingly supported by the Soviet Union, drawing the Soviet Union into a conflict in the country, which then drags on of course, in a different form, even till today. Um, and even and, and one of the things the U.S. does is it, it thwarts the attempts of U.N. mediators um, in the uh, early 1980s to bring an end to the conflict. And you see something similar when Saddam decides to deal with his own problem of his Shia population and so on, policing his own uh, discontent and extending his own um, uh, regime of total control by invading Iran immediately after the Iranian Revolution. Encouraged probably by the U.S., uh, it all goes wrong and it's stalemated. And then again, instead of finding a solution on the international stage, um, the U.S. role as much as anything, keeping Saddam alive long enough and giving him enough support that the Iranians can't defeat him and the war smolders on an extraordinary loss of life. Um, it's like for a further eight five years. or six hundred thousand killed, if I or what? What's the number? Yeah, I mean, no, nobody knows the exact casualty figures, and they're disputed, but it's in the hundreds of thousands. Yeah, um, is extraordinary loss of life, and you know, and a destructive effect on on uh, extraordinary destructive effect on both societies, Iran and Iraq, and it of course shapes their whole politics because when a country is at war. 
um, those in power can use war and the threat of the enemy and so on to push through all kinds of uh, extraordinary coercive controls that would be more difficult um, in, in peacetime. So the the shape that the Iran that the Islamic Republic takes in Iran is 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 very much affected by the fact that it's continuously at war for um, the first eight years of its life and the worsening situation in uh, in in Iraq is similarly shaped by this perpetual warfare my point about the us is that um you know the us decides um you know it calls it rather sweetly a policy of dual containment it would rather see iran and iraq um battle it out with each other um and and, and debilitate themselves um, the U.S. is no longer strong enough to sort of impose its own agenda on these countries, but to um, but but it would rather see them continue to weaken themselves through 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 continuous warfare than than support a a rapid solution to these conflicts through the UN. And it um, you know the specific thing it helped it, it does in thwarts through the UN is that. Um, uh, Iran is demanding that Iraq pay reparations. Um, it, it also demands regime change, that Saddam Hussein be removed from power, and U.S. will not counter either outcome, countenance either outcome, as part of a solution. It does not want Saddam Hussein removed from power, and it doesn't want uh, Iraq paying significant reparations to Iran for having launched the, 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 that, that first Gulf War, the Iran-Iraq War. To put it somewhat blithely, looking back at the whole sweep of the 20th century history of the region, there's sort of alternative paths of something more socialistic and something more barbaric. And the West, time and again, chooses the barbarism. It's not itself necessarily the source of all the barbarism, but where it could have stepped in and um, uh, found solutions, it it has in, in key places preferred to prolong conflicts than solve them. So to to finish up the Iraq story, uh, the U.S. obviously invades in 2003, and a commonplace criticism amongst critics is that it was a war for oil. Is is that right? Um, it's not wrong, but I don't think it tells us enough. Obviously, um, if this had been another part of the world that didn't have extraordinary oil resources, one cannot see the U.S. Um, so easily. Uh, organizing and justifying um, uh, this extraordinary commitment of weaponry and dollars and lives and so on to to such a destructive episode. And if, if you remember from the time of the war, um, it was actually key figures in in the administration, um, Paul Wolfowitz and others, who who when they were accused of going for war oil going to war for oil, said, of course, this is a war for oil. Um, oil and, and, and the oil economies of the region had produced, uh, in ways I was talking about earlier, um, this situation that somehow the very security, the very life of the West was at stake in what happened. And the idea that a state completely independent of the US and its authority might emerge, might challenge, might have its way, whether in Iran or Iraq, was um, intolerable to that way of thinking about the nature of the West's security. So what oil made possible was the seeming inevitability and obviousness of this you know, extraordinarily 
illegal act of launching a war against another country. Um, so it's, it's really on that level that I think of it as a war for oil rather than the level of, oh, we've got to seize control of uh, Iraq's oil. In fact, you know, they were somewhat careful to try and not construct things as directly taking control of the oil. Um, and I think, you know, in terms of the basic interests of various corporate interests in the U.S., it was not primarily the oil companies that were going to be the biggest beneficiaries. It was the vast military-related contracting companies, Halliburton, um, Brown Root, these kinds of things who reap the enormous profits. Of course, some of these companies also play a very large role in the oil industry as well, but they are contracting and service and rebuilding companies that um, uh, profit from these situations of, of conflict and the need to organize supply and so on, as well as a broader group of arms manufacturers and um, all kinds for whom um, sort of getting over the Vietnam syndrome, producing the idea that the U.S. can willingly go to war anywhere it wants, um, this, this, this bizarre idea of, you know, preemptive warfare, um, and as Cor- as Corey where- Robin writes about, sort of reanimating this post Cold War malaise of the 1990s, where uh, the American power has sort of lost its sense of purpose, according to many. Yeah. So you get a national purpose. You get um, uh, an extraordinary financial windfall. You get, uh, and and of course we've seen that. I mean, since that point, you know, the U.S. is now at war, engaged militarily in, in, in what, 18, 20 countries of the Middle East and uh, adjacent parts of Africa. I mean, an extraordinary ability now to just um, launch war in, you know, in Libya, in West Africa, in Somalia, in, um, uh, in Yemen, um, either directly or through local allies. Um, on a scale that was unthinkable before the Iraq war. So it's kind of, you know, what the Iraq war does is it unlocks that potential of unrestrained uh, military action. Of course, it helps that it's associated on it helps accelerate the development of new forms of warfare like drone warfare. So you don't have to necessarily put so many troops on the ground and all those kinds of things. But um, that to me is, 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 is a better frame in which to think about the war than, oh, we've got to go and seize the oil fields of Iraq. Um, uh, and, you know, in truth, yes, there are some U.S. oil companies now with contracts in Iraq. There's probably more Chinese and other East Asian oil companies who benefited than there are U.S. And the terms they've got are, you know, among the more difficult terms uh, anywhere in the world in terms of um, the amount of actually profit they make. It's nothing to complain about, but I don't see that in itself as sufficient um uh, explanation of how um, how the war was was brought about. I'm sure John Bolton will will wind all these conflicts down. <laughs> it's frightening. It's, it's, it's seriously frightening. the most frightening thing that's happened since Trump has taken office. I think. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Hello, this is Daniel Denver, host of the show that you are listening to. 
The Dig has launched its spring fundraising drive, and we're aiming to hit at least 1,000 supporters at patreon.com slash the dig by the end of June. We don't paywall our shows, i.e. we give them to you for free. And so we depend on your support to keep this thing running smoothly. That said, we do have cool stuff to send those of you who do donate. Contribute $10 or more a month, and I will mail you a copy of Jacobin's ABCs of Socialism. $20 or more, and I'll send you a bunch of books by Dig Guests and other great left-wing authors put out by Verso and other publishers. And that's not it. I just started a weekly newsletter for everyone donating at least $5, which, amongst other things, offers ideas for future reading from me and from my guests. Please take a quick moment and contribute what you can at patreon.com slash the dig. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash the dig. We can't do this without you, so please and thank you. And back to the show. The last thing I want to ask you about the Middle East is, I think, one of your most essential arguments which is that the political economy of petro-imperialism has always depended upon nurturing the power of conservative Islamist movements. And so, again, right-wing Islamism is not this reactionary force that has somehow persisted since the Dark Ages, I think is often thought of in the United States and elsewhere in the West, you know, raging against modernity and capitalism. Rather, as you argue, the empowerment of religious conservatives to protect friendly regimes was a response to the weakening of these traditional bases of uh, imperial authority that started to, to to weaken after World War II, the the power of colonial corporations, um, the the over this overwhelming military advantage, the the use of settlers and its ideological underpinning, which was racism, and so this is not about something in opposition to global capitalism. This is about the nature of global capitalism and. No country, obviously, better explains this history than Saudi Arabia. If you could explain what happened there and how it fits into to this argument, which I think applies much more generally as well. Yeah, Saudi Arabia is a very good example for discussing this. Of course, we shouldn't remember it. It's the only one or even the exceptional one. I, uh, in our earlier discussion, I talked about Iran in the 1950s, where the US and Britain were funding conservative Islamic groups as part of the way of weakening the nationalist movement. And you can find similar um, patterns way back, for example, in the, in the history of Egypt to the turn of the century and so on. Um, but since Saudi Arabia is one particularly associated with um, con- the most conservative forms of Islam, it's, uh, it's particularly poignant there. Um, and it predates oil in some ways, in the sense that the um, the ruling family, the Saud family, that emerged as dominant power in the Arabian Peninsula, um, formed an alliance with this um, ideologically very conservative uh, Islamic movement that was actually a movement. Uh, it was a modern movement of renewal in Islam with its roots in the 18th century and re-emergent in the 20th century that, that formed this alliance with a well-connected ruling family. The Sauds before oil were being funded by the British and um, 
with those British gold and weapons able to take control of much of the Arabian Peninsula. Um, but um, as the, the as the modern state develops and as oil develops, you have the emergence of all kinds of other political forces, um, leftist, progressive, uh, workers, uh, um, both in the um, uh, oil-producing regions of the country, but also um, among intellectuals, even among minor princes of, of the royal family. And again and again, what the regime does is it turns to its allies in the religious establishment um, to help police these kinds of threats and forces and uh, uses a very conservative, um, an ultra-conservative form of Islam as as a means of producing forms of social discipline, political power, and control. Um, now, that doesn't mean that political Islam is simply a tool of oil interests or even of the Saudi royal family, because part of the effectiveness of um, political Islam is it has a lot to offer people, um, uh, whether it's more conservative or it's more radical forms. Um, it is an extraordinary political force that offers um, an alternative to the cultural world of the West, to uh, forms of disruption of existing or um, patterns of uh, patriarchal authority of family um, hierarchy and so on. So it, it's got a lot of things it can offer. It can also offer people genuine forms of solace and belonging and so on. So I, I, I don't want to give the impression that um, the resources of Islam are simply something to be used at whim by political rulers. It is a force with its own appeal and its own attraction. But what I'm right about and what I'm interested about is the particular ways in which it was possible to form an alliance between political regimes and these kinds of religious forces. And that the way I frame it in the book, um, I actually took my title from the title of another book that was a kind of bestseller, I think, in the early 90s that was called um, uh, Jihad versus McWorld, saying that we had by, by a political scientist called Benjamin Barber saying we had a choice globally between what he called McWorld, by which he meant global capitalism, or the forces that are opposed to global capitalism, which um, this was in the, the, the wake of events like the Iranian Revolution, which he called Jihad, um, meaning uh, which he calls sort of tribal obscurantist, backward-looking forces. And that seems to me the idea that those two are opposing each other, the, the, the world of global capitalism on the one hand and the world of uh, political Islam seem to make no sense because of that kind of alliance one sees in a case like Saudi Arabia that has been so central to the order of the international petroleum industry and uh, the whole world of energy politics that emerged in the 20th century. Now, um, so I said, let's not call it Jihad versus McWorld. Let's look at that combination of those forces and call it McJihad. Um, it's a hybrid and it's an uneasy one. It doesn't mean that they just work neatly in each other's interests. There's all kinds of strains. And so when the you know, the certain Saudis start funding jihadists in Afghanistan, it gets a bit out of control. These kinds of uh, alliances break down or go wrong um, because they are things that have forces of their own and energies of their own. They can't simply be controlled by something called 
global capitalism or the interests of oil. If these were neat linear conspiracies, they wouldn't have contradictions. <laughs> Correctly, or, or anything like force that they acquire. Oil has obviously entered a point of political economic crisis with, with climate change. Looking forward, will the transition away from fossil fuels determine a particular set of social, uh, a particular social and economic order? Or is that, like the history that you tell, yet to be determined? Absolutely. It's, um, it's yet to be determined. And one of the points I'm uh, always very keen to emphasize is that this isn't energy determinism. This isn't tell me the kind of energy and I'll tell you the kind of politics. There's often a lot of hope and expectation that the um, transition to renewable sources of energy will involve a more distributed form of energy, which will somehow will take us away from the control of things by large corporations and by um, uh, banks and forces of, of credit and capital that are so concentrated these days. That that doesn't necessarily mean something that is liberating or freeing or, or um, democratizing. Prior to the rise of coal, the energy was very renewable and very distributed. Any any river, any forest, any field was a source of energy, and that wasn't in itself um, a source of democracy. It, it might have placed some limits on the extent of forms of oppression. That's a question one could think about. Anyhow, um, Yes, we are facing a transition. So um, un under the Paris Climate Agreement, um, there's a certain carbon budget. Um, there's a, a certain amount of CO2 that we can continue to burn um, and uh, to have a chance of staying under the Paris goal of um, 1.5 degrees centigrade um, increase in global warming since the start of the industrial age. Now, depending on whether you want a 30% or a 60% chance of staying under that, we will have burnt up that carbon budget in about four or five years. Um, so if we were serious about meeting the uh, um, the, the Paris uh, targets, there would be no more oil or coal, of course, or even gas taken out of the ground by 2025, let's say. Um, there's some hope that we can overshoot and go beyond the budget and then make up for it by policies of decarbonization later on. I mean, that's the only option at this point. Um, but all that is untested and untried. Um, and even involving that or even relaxing the requirement of keeping to 1.5 and going to 2 or 2.5, um, there doesn't seem to be any reasonable way in which oil can still be produced in any significant amount um, within a generation. Uh, so that is going to be a profound, profound political change, uh, above all for regions like the Middle East that depend so enormously on the um, revenues generated by oil production. Uh, what it means, um, it's very hard to predict. I think the most important lesson you know, that I've drawn from thinking about this is that it is in the way we um, make decisions about sources of energy and who controls our sources of energy that you know, a lot of our political future and our prospects for more democratic and more just political futures will be uh, shaped. My last question is, you make a case for, for peak oil in your, your book, and a uh, a lot of people say that the discovery and development of unconventional 
oil undermines this argument for for peak oil, not not yours specifically, but generally the argument for peak oil, has the development of the unconventional oil supply changed your your outlook? Um, what's what's your take today on peak oil? A little bit, but not um, uh, completely. I mean, uh, it looked like um, uh, what was what we now think of as conventional oil was was peaking around. 2005, or at least reaching a kind of plateau. Um, and generally speaking, that has been the case. It's been a bumpy plateau, but um, uh, uh, conventional oil indeed has has remained fairly flat. That doesn't mean a lot of new oil hasn't been produced, but we continue to see the, the, the increasingly rapid decline of oil produced from older fields and so on. Um, and the new conventional oil that's brought online is pretty minimal and it's, um, it, it's, uh, it's exhausted more quickly. Um, the thing that changed the picture in, uh, somewhat was indeed this uh, uh, extraordinary development of, of so-called tide oil or sometimes um, shale oil in the US um, where it was possible to use uh, new techniques to extract um, uh, vast amounts of, 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 of new oil. Um, and what that's done is is postponed the peak. Um, instead of being on just a bumpy plateau, we've risen to a slightly higher level and it looks like we will be there for depending on whose estimates you read, another five years, another eight years, or something like that. So we are still passing through a period of peak oil, but because the first plateau uh, produced this extraordinary increase in prices, a doubling or quadrupling of prices, after 2005, it made possible the exploitation of, of tight oil. Um, but uh, I, I tend to think that that question of uh, peak oil while it's still there, as something that will shape our future, um, is overshadowed by the implications of the Paris Climate Accord. And it's much more likely to be a process not of um, uh, production decreasing due to peak oil, but um, demand destruction. Um, you know, across almost all the um, old industrialized world, um, Oil uh, production, oil consumption, uh, demand for energy has been um, more or less plummeting everywhere. Uh, there's many, many countries in the industrial world that use less oil now than they used in the 1960s. Um, and the only reason why there is continued demand for oil, of course, is the extraordinary rise of China and India. Um, but uh, China, in particular, seems pretty serious about. Addressing, if not the entire problem of climate control, at least some of the most urgent issues around, you know, having cities in which you can actually breathe the air and so on. So it's hard to predict how it's going to go, but I do think the uh, the need to avoid the most um, catastrophic uh, consequences of, of climate change are, are going to be more important in shaping. The future of oil. You know, one of the interesting forms of politics has emerged, and you talked to you asked before about um, what kinds of politics can be associated, and what kinds of vulnerabilities one could say with with um, energy transitions. Um, and one of the interesting forms it's taken is um, the work of, of groups like Carbon Tracker in London, who um, 
finding the point of vulnerability of oil companies today, not so much in their pipelines, well, of course, there have been very significant pipeline protests, but in their share prices, because it's it, it, it's not actually in the current availability of oil that they're under threat, uh, nearly so much as it is the future. And their share price is a reflection of people's expectations about that future. And if you change the terms of the future by saying, we've actually got to end the use of oil by 2050, then that share price is way, way overvalued. Um, uh, not that share prices are calculated on the basis of 30 years from now, they look five to 10 years ahead. But of course, if you're going to reach zero by 2050, you're going to reach half that um, you know, 10 years from now. So uh, those kinds of points of vulnerability seem to me um, among the important ones uh, in, in, in the point we're at now with energy politics. Well, I think we have covered a pretty sizable chunk of the history of the entire world. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, uh, Timothy Mitchell, thank you so much for all of your time. It's been a great pleasure talking to you, and uh, thanks, for, thanks for having me. Timothy Mitchell is an historian and political theorist at Columbia and the author of Carbon Democracy, Political Power in the Age of Oil, from Verso. Thank you for listening to The Dig from Jacobin Magazine. As Marx once said after noting that capitalist production simultaneously undermines the original sources of all wealth, the soil and the workers, lol, last time I said the oil and the workers, while other podcasts have only interpreted the world in various ways, our point is to change it. We are posting new episodes every week. The Dig was produced by Alex Lewis, music by Jeffrey Brodsky. Follow us on Twitter at The Dig Radio, and please find us wherever you get podcasts and subscribe. If it's on iTunes, leave us a review, like the recent one that called me out as a high school stoner. Those reviews help introduce us to new listeners, so does spreading the word to your friends. All propaganda on our behalf is greatly appreciated. And last but certainly not least, do find us on patreon.com slash the dig and make a monthly contribution to keep this thing going. Even a few bucks is a big help. Mm-hmm.